Hi, everybody. Welcome to the next episode in our holiday series where we unpack cultural and intergenerational tensions around food and family. As we've been doing throughout the series, we're featuring one of our very own colleagues at LWC Studios. Today, it's Corey. Corey grew up in the Virgin Islands, where much of her extended family still lives. She has always been close to them, so it's hard not being able to join them for the holidays every year. As a way to stay connected, Corey's been trying to document and replicate beloved family recipes. But doing so is proving to be more difficult than she expected. Let's get into it. My name is Corey Duran, and I am the marketing associate for LWC Studios. I call my mom and dad, (laughs) mom and dad. I grew up in St. Croix, the Virgin Islands. My family is really large. We have maybe four or five main matriarchs, and all of my cousins were all considered just as close. So food has always just been there with our family, especially in the Caribbean. It's a big thing, and it's a big, funny thing to argue about it, of which family and which island makes the best meal. During Christmas, we would all get together at one of my, I technically she is my great aunt, and we would all go to her house and some people would even come from the different islands and we would spend Christmas day there and Christmas night. And everyone would bring different meals. We would have like pâtés, rolls, seasoned rice, saltfish, and we would spend a good couple of hours just eating and talking and playing around with our cousins. And Each year it kept happening. You could start noticing how less and less people would show up just because of health issues and people going off to college or starting their own families in the mainland or the States, really. And just the difficulty making it home on time sometimes. Like flights have always been pretty outrageous to get back home, even from New Orleans, where I am now. And it's just even harder during Christmas time, you know? So it was also (laughs) just one of those things that I really had to be aware of in terms of keeping home with me. And food was a really great way of doing that. When I graduated undergrad in 2020, my mom gifted me a cookbook. That cookbook had all of the recipes that she had in her cookbook. So this cookbook is just like a book with lined paper that she hand wrote. And I also then hand wrote a bunch of other things, some recipes that I kind of just scratched together by watching my aunts and my mom cook, you know? So there's no telling the accuracy of it, but at least something is there. There are a mix of foods that I just keep trying to make over and over again to perfect. Rolls, um, bread rolls. My mom has this really specific way of making them where you tie them in these knots and it's, seems so simple, but I can never do it. Like the yeast never rises for me. And then she comes behind me and does it. And she's like there. And I'm like, who's, who's playing those jokes on me now? <laughs> and then there's this other um, dessert. It's called red grout and it's made from guava and tapioca. And this is also part of the issue with the cookbook and just having a large family is that there are multiple recipes for the same dish. I've tried two of them, still didn't work. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing wrong. (laughs) I am trying to learn from women and men who have been making these things for 
longer than I've been born, to ask them just to recite it off the top of their head, they're going to forget things because they're not really thinking about it when they're doing it. It's kind of just so ingrained in them. So it's challenging because in order to really get an understanding of how things are made from the ingredients to the size of the vegetable when you're cutting it or the order that they're being put in, you really have to be there and watch them make it. There's no real recipe. They're just kind of following their heart. (laughs) It's funny. I was talking to my mom just about how I'm still trying to perfect a lot of these things. And she was like, the perfection is your own secret sauce after years of practice. And I was like, cool, very motivating, but also got a lot of years to go. (laughs) So the last time I went to St. Croix was um, the summer of 2021, because that is when I moved to New Orleans. So it has been a year and a half. I'm not sure that there was anything specifically terrible that had happened. But you know, when you're just having one of those really rough weeks and no amount of Netflix can make you feel better. It's one of those moments where you're like, oh, I need a hug from the inside. And I just made some curry chicken and tried to make my dumplings better. I'm still working on that as well. But the curry chicken turned out great. And I loved sharing it with my friends. That's also something that I think food is really nice about. You can share your identity and your home with people that you love who just have never experienced it either. Being in a place where you don't have family, although I do have great friends and they have great families, there is always that sense of like, not where do I belong, but what feels like a hug from my mom or from my aunt when they aren't there and when they can't give it to me? Or when I'm really sick, how do I feel nourished and taken care of? And how can I provide that for myself? And I think that's what food is able to do. Hmm. Hearing Corey talk about that yearning to preserve family recipes gave me chills. I felt the same sense of urgency with my own family. And as someone who really enjoys cooking and mostly learn through trial and lots and lots and lots of error, I saw myself in her kitchen struggles, really and truly. What can we as first gens do to capture our family's culinary knowledge and traditions so they don't vanish in future generations? How do we document what has never been written down? And how can we be sure we're getting it right? To help us figure it out, I called in an expert. My name is Natesh Florimon, out of New York City by way of Haiti. And I'm a chef, author, and all-around food lover. So all my work is centered around food, community, and building community through food. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, so always the first question. As you listened, what did you hear in Corey's story? The same thing I hear in most immigrant stories, right? We're so hungry to really maintain that heritage. And food is such a strong part of our identity. People oftentimes, when we talk about soundtrack, we're thinking about the music. I'm like, really, food is the real soundtrack to our lives (laughs) when you think about it, right? Oh, I love that. The communions, the family birthdays, even the funerals, the sadness, food is there. So hearing Corey, I was reminded of why I even got into food because it was 
very unintentional. I was going to become a lawyer, like a good immigrant child. I was born in Haiti, left at seven, came here to Brooklyn, which was like little Haiti in New York. But then I went to the Upper West Side at Columbia University, very white university. And for the first time, I was meeting people that were not like me. And I didn't want to lose myself. I grew up with a single dad. So cooking was just part of our household. I wanted to cook those meals again and reconnect with home. But also I was like, hmm, this is also a great opportunity to share Haiti with others. And that became my life's work. So for someone like Corey, who is clearly so invested in preserving those traditions, the recipes, the methodologies that her family and her relatives have passed down, what do you think are some of the initial steps for her to begin to capture and to chronicle all of this wonderful knowledge and wisdom? I mean, it's some of the same methods I had to employ in writing my book, Haiti Uncovered, because I basically traveled Haiti to write that book. The first thing I did was conversation, Mm -hmm. really talk as they are cooking, though. Have them talk you through what they're doing. Even if they're not giving you exact measurements, pay attention. What are they saying? It's not just the ingredients, how you put it together, when you put it in. The technique. The technique. And a lot of that comes with the nuance of experience or just special ways that cooks do certain things. So I want to break this down a little bit further because I cook. And whenever I am asked to share a recipe, literally the first thing I say is, please make sure that you do this and that you don't do this. Because it's not just a chronological order, right? It's the ingredients that are in the pot have to get to a certain point before you do something else to them, right? So what you're suggesting here is to ask at which point and how do I tell when that point has arrived in the cooking process? Exactly. And have them talk you through even why they do it like that, right? I'm big on caramelizing everything because I'm yes. I'm like, it gives you flavor. You get extra flavor when you caramelize. <laughs> so anyone who watches me cook or watches me live on social media, they was like, oh my God, Nadesh guy let it brown. I was like, yes, those bits and pieces <laughs> give you flavor. That's how I do it. So when you're speaking to your parents and family members, they have their reasoning. The next second thing is record it. You need to record elders. You need to record people that don't actually know how much of this. Because through that recording, you'll take notes and you'll be able to say, okay, she started off with a cup of water. Because that's how we create recipes as chefs. I grew up cooking not through recipes. I just opened a restaurant and I just like, oh, I make... Congratulations. Thank you. I was like, I make great plants and sandwiches, but I want to franchise this, right? Right. For me to franchise it, the staff needs to understand how much onions, how much cabbage, how does this happen? So I had to kind of like backstep. All right. And then how do I translate things like, you know, a pinch of this? Like there's a lot of these vague measurements. That is true. Because at the end of the day, food is really art. A recipe may call for basil. If you hate basil, why are you putting it in your food (laughs) when you can just have a wonderful same dish with cilantro or parsley, right? So 
you also have to bring yourself to a recipe. I heard Corey said, her mom said to her, your way of doing it is ultimately going to be the secret sauce. And unfortunately, Carrie, that part is true. (laughs) (laughs) Use a recipe as a foundation, as a guide. Now see, what do you like about it? What nuances does it have and what nuances can you bring to it? What can you take out? What can you add to it? And really just make it your own. You're speaking my language right now. Um, (laughs) My oldest son, for his 13th birthday, he has asked me to start teaching him how to cook. And I'm so excited for that. But I am so scared about him just being like, why are you doing it that way? Why don't you do it this way? Or I saw a video on YouTube and that's not how they did it. So Nadesh, help me. How do I, as the giver of knowledge in this instance with my son, how do I also do this work of translating what has taken me two decades to perfect, right? Like I've burned and flambéed and overseasoned and undercooked enough in my life now that I'm a decent cook, but that was... process. Yeah. But I think it's exactly what you just said, a conversation. Food and cooking allows for conversation for that connection and for that vulnerability because I teach food in schools and I often tell kids it's about it's life skills it's about life the same methods and the things that apply in the kitchen will also take place in life you will burn things yes you will change things around you (laughs) you will realize that certain things just don't work for you yeah and everybody may like something and you may not like it that's just perfectly what life is about. So I think for you, it's just a matter of taking that opportunity. I'm here to teach you my way. This is how I make it. Now, don't take it as gospel either, because I want you to be able to implement a piece of yourself or create from it. What can you add to it? Would you do it? And ask those questions like, hmm, would you do anything different? It's also a way to really spark up their curiosity and really start getting them to think outside the box. Okay, but I'm going to push back a little bit on that in a friendly way, which is that throughout these conversations that we've been having on the Food and Family series, the question of maintaining the authenticity keeps coming up, right? Like, okay, but if I just change it, is it my family recipe? Is it the heirloom dish that has been passed down? Where do you stand on that? So this question of authenticity is oftentimes so funny. Because Haiti's independent soup, soup jumu, right? Which is a squash soup. What I know, what I grew up in all my 41 years eating, and a lot of family members grew up eating, is it's that squash base with beef, some kind of meat, uh, root vegetables, right? Mm -hmm. But vegetarians started like, I want to eat soup jumu too. I don't want meat in my soup jumu. And everybody's like, oh my God, it's not soup jumu if it's vegetarian. (laughs) Only to find out. The original soup jumu that was made in 1804 was vegetarian. Was a vegetarian version. <laughs> so authenticity, <laughs> like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder, right? And not even right because it's what's authentic to you. It will always vary from family. It will vary from regions, and then you get into the element of class, right? Oh yeah, because and economics because people prepare food based on ingredients they have available. So authenticity, yes, there is a base, there's a foundation, but we also have to be open. 
we have to also evolve, right? And then also talk to multiple people in the family too. Because through the different pieces and people from them, you will be able to gather and create like, okay, this is where it all meets. All right, I have two final questions for you. And one is, some of the dishes from our home countries are really elaborate and really involved. And this is why we only make them on special occasions. But we do want to be able to experience some of those flavors and some of the techniques that are used. What is your best advice for, you know, a novice or slightly less experienced cook about how to incorporate their home country flavors into how they just cook and eat? And what are some of the second part of the question is, what are some of the staples that you suggest everybody just keep in their kitchen to facilitate that? There's a lot more technology, I think, that we have available to us. Like, I still peel everything with a knife. But I also realize I don't have to. Right. But that's because that's how I grew up eating it. Buy fresh coconuts, break open, take it out, blend it so I could get coconut milk to put in my rice. There's times I'm like, no, I'm getting me a can of coconut milk. It's just as good. (laughs) You know? If you want the flavor, trust me. You don't have to grate manually put the sucker in a food processor. <laughs> yes, buy your vegetables chopped up already. It's okay. If you can't afford it, why not? Does it cost more money? Yes. Yes. But do I always want to be cutting onions and peppers if I don't have time? No. But I still want that flavor. So I think these are some of the things we can do. Like understand what was done and what's the shortcut version. What are some staples that you think we should just have handy in our kitchen when we do feel like that yearning for something that calls home? For me, funny enough, as I'm speaking to you, hold on. Every time I go to Haiti, I come back with one of these. Oh, <laughs> okay. I am looking at an absolutely beautiful pilong, which is what we call it. Yes. But it's a mortar and pestle hand-carved in wood. So for me... I need that because as much as I could blend my ippies, because Haitian people have ippies, which is similar to like a sofrito. We make that spice blend with our scallions, our garlic, things like that. But for me, having this piece really just keeps me connected to how the process and what cooking really represented, which is also the time, the effort, the labor, and also the love. That's a beautiful note to end on. Oh, Nadesh, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Alika, for having me. All right, let's recap what we learned from Nadesh. Talk through it. Have your relatives describe what they're doing as they're doing it while they're cooking and have them explain to you why they're doing things the way they're doing it. Understanding their reasoning will help you learn their techniques. Hit record. The cooks in your family may not have exact measurements, but don't stress. Record a video of them cooking, then estimate quantities yourself and study how they test and taste along the way. And remember, bring yourself to the recipe. Once you have the foundation, go ahead and change things up. Replace ingredients you don't like or don't have access to. Embrace shortcuts. Let your culinary adaptations begin new traditions.
Thank you for listening, as always, and thank you for sharing us. How to Talk to Mommy and Papi About Anything is an original production of LWC Studios. Virginia Lora is the show's producer. Trent Lightburn mixed this episode. I'm the creator, Juleika Lantigua. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Talk to Mommy Papi. Bye, everybody. Same place next week. <laughs>